every night um, after the office would close, uh, the Panthers would sit down and and they would study these books. We'd go to political orientation. We would read uh, certain paragraphs, and then um, uh, Fred Hampton and uh, Rush would explain to us, the new membership, basically what it meant and what was happening, and they drew parallels to what was going on in the past revolutions in the various countries, uh, like, for instance, China or Russia, and it was drawing parallels to what was going on in the current political scene within the United States. 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 Now, how the Bureau got this information is not entirely clear, but it's apparently by informants. People aren't hip to that yet. They're not really aware of it. They know shit going on in this country somewhere. He's not turned on to uh, that power structure. We just, just know that life is becoming increasingly miserable for everybody. It is a cultural war as critical as the Cold War itself. But when they find out who it is, it's causing trouble. But this war is for the soul of America. And who it is that's uh, making life miserable. And they're all going to be just like the Panthers. China, the People's Republic, and even in the state they're in now, talking about even going on further into a communistic state. Nobody is enough powerful opposite now the public opinion of the free country of Cuba. In December of 2017, you characterized the abuses related to COINTELPRO as, quote, one of the darker moments in the FBI's history. It's something we're not proud of, but it is also something we've learned from, learned from. Poetry is the incomparable lyric intelligence brought to bear upon 57 varieties of experience. It is the energy of the soul, if the soul exists. It is a high house, echoing with all the voices that ever said anything crazy or wonderful. It is a subversive raid upon the forgotten language of the collective unconscious. Several months ago, I was having my usual Saturday morning cup of tea by my window, lamenting the fact that my neighbor with the dead yard still, for some reason, hires yard workers to come attack it with mowers and blowers every Saturday. This particular Saturday, however, I learned that I wasn't the only one annoyed. I put down whatever comic I was reading and peered out the window because another of my neighbors was shouting at the workers to stop making all the noise. She said to them, this is America, and in America, we get one day of rest a week. Then she launched into a further tirade that I couldn't quite understand, but I'm sure it was racist and awful if that preamble is anything to judge by. Listen, I also hate leaf blowers. They're the worst tool ever invented, but there's an important distinction I have to make. While I would most certainly wish away every single leaf blower to have ever existed, I can't, in good conscience, be mad at the workers who are annoying me. I mean, I can and I am, but only because of the general immediacy of human emotion and reaction. When I interrogate these feelings of intense, animalistic hatred, I can only conclude that I'm actually angry at the system that forced me and these poor workers into this situation in the first place. If a worker could have a quiet leaf blower, I'm sure they would. 
but they have bosses who won't spring for electric ones. The bosses have no incentive to spend that kind of money. Further, under what we call the dictatorship of capital, which is the system we in the US labor under presently, the bosses have the power, and workers are forced to accept imperfect, undesirable, and often even dangerous conditions because their paychecks can almost exclusively come from capitalist employers. Why do workers accept this? Why do we, as annoyed victims of these kinds of money-saving decisions, accept this? Why do we all accept a government that constantly and mercilessly sides with the people who make these decisions? What if I told you that our acceptance of these states of affairs is no accident, that for the last 70 years, the U.S. government has implemented numerous programs of infiltration and violence against organizations who were fighting all this? and that there are currently media initiatives to keep us from realizing one solid foundational truth. The truth that we are one working class and that we're stronger together. What worries me is that America's kind of lost its sense of the future right now. The idea is the future is going to be the collapse of empire or the rise of the zombies or something that wipes us all out. Truth man's on it forever. Superman, as far as I'm concerned, that saved my life. Grim, totalitarian police state in Britain of the unreachably far future, like 1997. Comic book artists were not happy with Warhol or with McIntyre or any of the pop artists because they said they took our imagery and we got paid page rate. The plan for this episode was to discuss the first appearance of S.H.I.E.L.D. Originally, Supreme Headquarters International Espionage and Law Enforcement Division, but more recently and more ominously, Strategic Homeland Intervention Enforcement and Logistics Division, or also known as the most tortured acronym in the history of humankind, but there's really not a whole lot of meat in this comic. S.H.I.E.L.D. first hit the scene in Strange Tales number 135 in August of 1965. The story is short, only the first part of an entire comic book. It serves not only as our introduction to S.H.I.E.L.D., but Nick Fury's as well. S.H.I.E.L.D. reveals their existence to him and asks him to become their new director as they take on the mysterious worldwide malevolence known as HYDRA. Fury hems and haws for a bit before noticing there's a bomb in the meeting room and tossing it out the window. He then assumes immediate de facto command to find the doity rat what done this. They catch the guy and Fury agrees to stay. The end. That's pretty much it. Most of the issue is just S.H.I.E.L.D. showing Fury a bunch of neat weapons that they have. It's boring, and Jack Kirby's art makes it only moderately readable. But I guess there's our crossover point because this issue of The Ultimates is also totally Snoresville, man. This issue is a walking tour around an information dump. The Wasp has been captured, and The Ultimates are apparently dead. I say apparently because we know that can't be true. But if it were, I'd almost be rooting for the Nazi aestheticized aliens. Almost. 
Not really, but come on. This issue features the least amount of screen time for the Ultimates right after the first one, making it the second best issue. We open up with a whole page dedicated to the destruction of Micronesia, where S.H.I.E.L.D. and the Ultimates had been mobilized on the false intel of their Psy Division, whom, unbeknownst to them, had already been infiltrated by the Chitauri, the shape-shifting alien supremacists who've been cosplaying as Nazis and trying to take over the world since the 40s. We see the total wreckage, the absolute devastation of the S.H.I.E.L.D. fleet, which means this is the only good page in the entire book. According to the timestamp at the top, it's been half an hour since the Ultimates landed in Micronesia. Cut to the Triskelion, S.H.I.E.L.D.'s floating fortress, and the Chitauri have cemented their control over it. We're in the command center with Herr Kleiser, the apparent leader of the invasion who's been around since World War II, and he's barking orders in his native tongue to double-check that there are no signs of life from Captain America and his little band of nobodies. He gets some pushback, but unlike most villains, he doesn't just assume his plan worked and move on without confirmation. Good for him. He then leaves to go terrorize Janet Pym, the Wasp, who has holed herself up in a communications room. She wasn't able to get a message to the Ultimate's last issue because the comms have been sabotaged. So she's just sort of huddled against a computer bank. It's unclear how long she's been in there, but we know it's been less than 30 minutes. Herr Kleiser, no-nonsense bad guy that he is, simply smashes the wall around the bulkhead to get inside. Then, confusingly, he claims that the room has been sealed, so there's nowhere for her to go, right next to the giant hole in the room that he himself created. Jan yells at him to drop dead and shrinks to wasp size to escape. In a convenient display of alacrity and dexterity, Herkleiser snatches Jan out of the air before she can fly past him and cautions against attacking him with the tiny energy blasts she can create because he's stronger than his minions. He then puts her in a test tube, and that's the end of the action for almost the entire issue. And you just know that artist Brian Hitch is about to have a field day with all the tastefully shadowed close-ups of the now naked superheroine in a see-through jar. Thus begins our guided tour of the Chitauri's entire invasion plan. Jan asks Kleiser as he carries her around the Triskelion if they've taken over the whole base. He tells her that no, they have not. They've just secured key positions in the chain of command. He explains that this was easy to do because nobody in these super spy organizations knows where their orders are coming from. Last time, we talked about data gathering, about the sort of underhanded tactics the government uses to disrupt leftist activity from the outside. But part of that overlaps with what we need to talk about today. One of the most effective disciplines of intelligence gathering is human, which you'll recall if you listened to the last episode means human intelligence, anything that's gathered by people on the ground pretty much regardless of their actual role. There are a couple of pretty famous projects that the U.S. government has used to disrupt historical revolutionary movements, the most well-known of which is, of course, COINTELPRO.
COINTELPRO, an abbreviation for counterintelligence program, is a program of infiltration and delegitimization of revolutionary movements in the United States. I say is because despite what official documents might claim, there's no way it actually closed in 1971. And don't worry, I have some very recent examples. The COINTELPRO papers by Ward Churchill and Jim Vanderwool describes COINTELPRO as, quote, a secret, systematic, and sometimes savage use of force and fraud by all levels of government to sabotage progressive political activity supposedly protected by the U.S. Constitution, end quote. How does COINTELPRO work? Let's look at some of the most well-known tactics with some historical examples. Perhaps the sharpest and most immediately apparent consequence of COINTELPRO's efforts in the 60s is the betrayal and murder of legendary activist Fred Hampton on December 4, 1969. An FBI infiltrator named William O'Neill joined Hampton's organization, the Black Panthers, and quickly ingratiated himself so thoroughly that he was made director of chapter security and even became Hampton's personal bodyguard. O'Neill was tasked with creating a rift between Hampton's chapter of the Black Panthers and the rest of the organization, as well as between the Black Panthers and other radical groups. Even with the information O'Neill gave his FBI contact, saying that the Black Panthers' largest project was providing school lunches to children for free, the agency continued to use O'Neill to pressure Hampton. As the work of the party grew more demanding, Hampton rented an apartment in Chicago closer to the party headquarters. It was of this apartment that O'Neill drew a map for the FBI. Using this knowledge, the FBI raided the place and murdered a sleeping Hampton, whom O'Neill had drugged earlier in the night. This is, of course, only one instance among many of FBI infiltration and agitation. It hasn't stopped. In Pennsylvania in 2000, four state troopers posed as activists to infiltrate a group planning to use puppets to protest the Republican National Convention. Thanks to their efforts, the police made mass arrests and even tried to charge the activists with bomb-making, despite that not being true at all. Just a few months ago, The Intercept published a story about the FBI hiring a Colorado Springs Police Department detective named April Rogers to infiltrate local activist groups in 2020. Not only was Rogers relaying information to the FBI on the group, but, as should be expected, she tried to involve members she was spying on in a fucking gun-running scheme just so she could get them arrested. Now, it should come as no surprise to any listeners of this podcast that one of the FBI's most formidable weapons was, and is, a complicit corporate media. That's why you never hear about things like state infiltrators obstructing groups trying to do work that, in general, the majority of people in the United States agree with. Um, I'll take that one, and um, that one, and um, and that one, and... Beyond simply not reporting on things that actually happened, complicit corporate media has a history of the exact opposite, reporting on things that did not happen. On May 22, 1968, a secret memo was sent recommending that cooperative media report on a supposed rift 
between Martin Luther King Jr.'s Poor People's Campaign and a similarly oriented Quaker-led group called the American Friends Service Committee. Attached to the memo was a two-paragraph article written entirely by the FBI and meant to be published word for word. It claims that certain leadership of the Poor People's Campaign was so wary of the AFSC that they were refusing to go to their own office in Washington because of the friends that were there. This most likely wasn't even a little bit true. But even if it were, the purpose of the article was to communicate to those who might have been potential allies of either group that something was going terribly wrong and that it might not be worth their time or in their best interests to organize with these people or even associate with them. Yet a third face in the complicity of the media manifests as simple justification of the government's actions. In 2002, the Justice Department released a document called the Attorney General's Guidelines for Domestic FBI Operations that reinstated the rights of the agency to observe and collect information on everyone in the country. The document also explicitly mentions the FBI's method of using informants in organizations that are unaware of their surveillance. Further, the guidelines include this terrifying sentence, quote, Assessments require an authorized purpose, but not any particular factual predication. End quote. Just a few sentences down, quote, For example, assessment activities may involve proactively surfing the internet to find publicly accessible websites and services through which recruitment by terrorist organizations and promotion of terrorist crimes is openly taking place. End quote. Now, where have we heard about internet data collection before? So, starting right around the time of the Ultimates, the FBI is now able to open and justify cases of intelligence gathering and threat monitoring with little more than bogus vibes, my dude. Shortly after the announcement of the guidelines, numerous articles in major papers were written debating the merits of the changes. The best we got out of all of them that I found was the Washington Post actually just mentioning what some of the changes were and the New York Times noting that, quote, civil libertarians were claiming that the program violated the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. In an absolutely jaw-dropping move, one-time radical and now disgusting lunatic David Horowitz wrote an article in 2004 for Salon.com, a news and editorial outlet that bills itself as left-slash-progressive, titled, I swear to God, COINTELPRO's Overdue Return. In it, Horowitz rails against the left as being dangerous for the United States because they weaken our defense against attack from the outside. He also claims that left-wing organizers are all gun-happy militants who drool over the collapse of the United States. I've said this before, but it really would be cool if the left in the U.S. were as dangerously effective as the right wing seems to think we are. This sort of leads us to the third tactic COINTELPRO uses. You'll see people on the internet making jokes about a supposed lack of left unity because the general impression, or rather the intended one, 
is that there is simply zero cooperation among people who consider themselves left-wing, and that any attempt to remedy this is a fool's errand. This is internet bullshit. Any serious organizer can tell you that. Revolutionary organizations are constantly building coalitions within and among other groups. I myself have worked with my party alongside single-issue organizations like tenants unions and homeless outreach mutual aid groups. This fight is our fight, and when we fight, we win. So why does it seem like such a mess when you're scrolling past it on your phone? Speaking from personal experience, I can tell you that I've dealt with many a goof online who loves to cast aspersions on social movements and particularly the efforts of non-Eurocentric governments. Similar, too, are the ones who waste no opportunity to publicly decry any number of communist or leftist tendencies. When you see these comments, it gives one the vibe that there simply isn't a solid left wing in the U.S. political consciousness. And it's true that, thanks specifically to projects like COINTELPRO, and thanks to union-busting under Reagan and now under Biden, and thanks to corporate media consolidation that is simply natural to capitalism but was accelerated under Clinton, the left in the United States, writ large, has been severely weakened. The purpose of online chaos, however, is to present a confused mess that would discourage any curious would-be comrade from wading through. This isn't accidental. The FBI and the CIA have specific documents outlining leftist tendencies that they consider easier to work against than others, and they promote these through large fake accounts. As well as using internet influencers to undercut philosophies, organizations, and other countries that they consider threatening, intelligence agencies use slick, very academic-seeming accounts to take up space in left-wing conversations and promote more theoretical approaches over active ones. It's essentially a direct response to one of Marx's passages from the theses on Feuerbach. The philosophers have hitherto only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. Anyone who tells you not to organize is at least carrying water for the capital class, whether they realize it or not. And it doesn't matter what reason they give you, be it that a certain group is ineffective or that nothing matters because the fight is hopeless. This is nonsense. Get out there and join an organization. Continuing the conversation with Kleiser, because there's simply nothing else for her to do while she's trapped in this test tube, Jan asks him how he intends to hide the deaths of the 20,000 S.H.I.E.L.D. troops. Doesn't he believe that someone will miss them? He accedes that their friends and family will, sure, but the soldiers were all S.H.I.E.L.D. black ops, so their presence and their activities necessarily go largely unacknowledged. Great, so it's revealed that, along with the Ultimates B-Team, S.H.I.E.L.D. budgeted for at least 20,000 more Black Ops troopers. And we know from Episode 8 what all that entails. I know this is sketchy, but it's all we've got. Thank you, sir. Jan then challenges Kleiser to explain the disappearance of the Ultimates to the world. He dismisses this concern, 
a plane crash, a terrorist attack, whatever seems convincing. And is this Mark Miller in 2002 quietly acknowledging that he thinks the official 9-11 story is bullshit? I somehow doubt it. I believe he was merely reaching into his shallowest of memories to pull out a line with no deeper meaning. Same goes for the two times he has Captain America crash a plane into something in this book. If Alan Moore had done that, I think we would all know what he was trying to say. Anyway, Kleiser continues with this line. Quote, we're running S.H.I.E.L.D. now, Mrs. Pym, and that means we get to write whatever headlines take our fancy. This brings up an interesting question. Where is Betty Ross, Bruce Banner's separated wife and director of public relations for S.H.I.E.L.D.? Last we saw, she was in the Triskelion visiting area outside Bruce's detention cell, where he was being held for turning himself into the Hulk and destroying parts of Manhattan to give the Ultimates something to stop for some good PR. We don't see or hear from Betty again until after the plot is resolved. So where the hell was she? Perhaps more pressing, what's going on with Bruce Banner? We'll come back to this in the season finale, but rest assured, I have further questions. We get a whole six-panel page showing Kleiser taking Jan from the Triskelion, getting in a jeep, giving her a meaningful look of some sort, and climbing into a helicopter and flying away. The last issue was well-paced, with spreads that actually reflected the internal struggles of the characters, however shallow those might be, or communicated the sheer might of the Chitauri and the effectiveness of their trap. This time, it's just an old idiot getting into planes, trains, and automobiles with a naked lady in his pocket. We're shown on the next page that they're flying to just outside Phoenix, Arizona. Miller and Hitch didn't have much to say about this issue in the interview in the back of the collected edition, but Brian Hitch does mention that the aerial shot of this facility 30 miles from Phoenix that Kleiser is flying Jan to is actually a modified version of a satellite image of Area 51, the notoriously mysterious U.S. military installation that everyone and their mother believes to be full of aliens. Just Hitch's idea of an interesting fact, I guess. Kleiser exits the helicopter and is received by eight rows of uniformed troops standing at attention, four on either side of the helicopter's open hatch ramp. He strides past them, and into a warehouse full of military equipment and gigantic Nazi banners hanging from the rafters. Kleiser explains to Jan that the aesthetic is just for nostalgia's sake. They've been collecting and hoarding it since they were driven out of Berlin in the 40s. And it's here that I think Mark Miller begins paying off a joke he set up two issues ago. Remember when Betty and Bruce were discussing the then-only guest-at efforts of the Chitauri right after we saw the fight between Captain America and Giant Man? Betty was telling Bruce that she'd heard rumors that the Chitauri were doing things like drugging water supplies around the world and planting microchips in kids' heads. Well, here we get to see that the Chitauri are indeed doing that. Kleiser introduces Jan to a Chitauri scientist named Suverkrub who explains a little about the mood suppressants in the water and mentions how excited he is for the next phase, which, of course, involves a program of microchipping. He even claims that it's part and parcel with their nefarious schemes involving cell phones, but we don't get any more details. Yeah, it's sort of funny. It has a very dry setup and payoff. 
and, you know, that's not something super typical for Mark Miller. But the fact that crazy kooky things like this are talked about enough to make it into pop culture is really a reflection, or maybe a symptom, of a pretty deep sickness that has been inflicted on the working class. In the Flat Earth, or rather Flat Earther documentary, Behind the Curve, physicist Lamar Glover has this to say about the divide between, quote, serious scientists and crackpot whack jobs. Quote, truthers, flat earthers, anti-vaxxers, when we leave people behind, we leave bright minds to mutate and stagnate. These folks are potential scientists gone completely wrong. Their naturally inquisitive rejection of norms could be beneficial to science if they were more scientifically literate. So every flat earther shouldn't be held in contempt, but should serve as a reminder for a scientist that could have been, someone that fell through the cracks. And we, as ambassadors of science, are called upon to do more. So scientists of varying degrees of professionalism Seriously consider becoming a mentor to someone who is coming from a non-traditional point of entry to the sciences, end quote. I'm not here to tell you to go talk to your flat-earther neighbor. That shit's wild. What I am here to tell you to do is consider that members of the working class are angry. They're hurting. Each paycheck feels a little smaller. Each day seems a little busier. Their lives are getting worse, and like the people Dr. Glover was referring to, without active intervention from those of us who have had the guidance and have done the reading, they're very likely to draw the wrong conclusions as to why. I've remarked before that, quote, liberal media's main function in the United States is to sell the working class on foreign wars. Using a similar metric, It could be argued that conservative media's main function in the U.S. is to sell the working class on a civil war. For a while now, we've been calling this the culture war. The rights of trans people, the rights of immigrants, queer rights, women's rights, black and indigenous rights, all of these are non-negotiable. The reason these rights are mentioned so often alongside workers' rights in general is that the oppression wrought by capitalists affects every one of us. This is summed up in the popular slogans, an injury to one is an injury to all, and none are free until all are free. The main reason that we have to make a distinction in the struggle is that at various times and with various justifications, marginalized or oppressed groups are made the scapegoats for the problems of the white working class. The unemployed construction worker is told that an illegal immigrant took their job. A struggling family hears it from Fox News that a so-called special interest group, usually code for black mothers, is receiving government benefits while they are receiving nothing. Anger is being directed at trans people for apparently putting everyone's children in danger, despite Congress having a much worse track record in that regard. Those ancient dodos at the club... You'd have to use a stethoscope to be sure they were still living. Per Media Matters, Fox News aired 86 anti-trans stories 
between January 20, 2021 and March 22, 2021. 86 stories in two months. From March 17, 2022 to April 6, 2022, they aired 170 anti-trans segments. Just a month ago, June of 2023, Fox News was accused of altering the content of Associated Press and Reuters articles that they republished to further the case for the fear and the hatred of trans people. Every day, you can read about illegalized migrant workers being some sort of nebulous drain on the system, but you'll rarely read about how the system they're supposedly draining was deliberately defunded and by whom. Local news stations have become nothing more than bullhorns for city police press releases that pretty much only manage to talk about petty crimes and covertly point the finger at black people. Why are they doing this? Why do they run stories like these? Because they have to. Because we all hate leaf blowers and would gladly come together to build a better world in which the bosses have to pay for quiet ones. They have to report on these so-called cultural issues because it makes it easier to suppress the efforts of leftist organizers. A quote from Ben Burgess at Jacobin, quote, Another reason that culture war battles are less favorable ground for the left than battles over economic interests is simple arithmetic. The vast majority of society would benefit from left-wing policy proposals. This doesn't guarantee that the vast majority will support them, of course, but it does make the task of winning majority support much easier, end quote. When manufactured boogeymen are cast as the enemy rather than the owning class that is immiserating workers, that's just another obstacle that organizers have to face in their battle to win over the working class. We now have to argue with someone who's yelling at the yard worker and not at the boss. Not to mention how much space and breath are now being given to these so-called menaces to society that could have been used for discussions about real issues like wages, healthcare, and housing, to name a few. This, of course, does not mean that left-wing organizers should deprioritize the struggles of the marginalized. Rather, it means the opposite. The goal now, in the face of such blatant and divisive scare tactics, is to pull together closer than ever before and demonstrate how the battle for marginalized peoples is the battle for the working class. Does this mean we allow racists, sexists, bigots into our ranks? Absolutely not. There's a reason educate comes before agitate and organize. To be a communist, to be meaningfully left-wing at all, one has to have a heart for the working class. We love the oppressed and we fight the oppressors. We recognize that all struggles are one, and we plan accordingly. So how does Mark Miller feel about the culture war? Well, he takes a rather confusing stance on it. In a quote for the British paper The Times, Miller said the following, quote, What a weird, narrow time we're living in where someone's views on the economy or foreign relations should forbid them from getting work on Spider-Man or Plastic Man. It's absolutely nuts. I'm a member of the most left-wing party in Europe. I've stood at rallies and introduced speakers like John McDonnell, regarded as the most left-wing shadow chancellor in British history, and I have no issue with people thinking differently from me. Our friends should come in all shapes and sizes, or we'll never learn anything. 
end quote. Miller is referring to longtime comics writer Chuck Dixon, notorious conservative among an otherwise mostly liberal stable. It's weird that he so vehemently flaunts his leftist credentials while defending someone who runs ostensibly counter to them. It's almost like he doesn't have any leftist values at all. Hard to say how he'd feel if Dixon's conservatism in any way affected him. It should be noted, too, that the culture war narrative has not been weaponized solely to distract and divide the working class. As I said, the liberal media is tasked with selling us on foreign intervention and U.S. exceptionalism. It's by no means above using the particular side of the culture war it champions as an arrow in its quiver. Not now, and not then. In 2002, the New York Times published an article titled The Real Culture War that was sort of about a new book by Bernard Lewis, a man who spent an entire career being dunked on by the great Edward Said. The book, What Went Wrong?, is a then-modern Eurocentric interpretation of the 1979 Iranian Revolution. But that's not really important. In the article, writer Paul Kennedy includes the following, quote, On the whole, the varied societies of our planet are marching, however briskly or reluctantly, in lockstep with an America of laissez-faire economics, cultural pluralism, and political democracy. This was and is a heady stew and one that took Western Europe and North America four or five generations to absorb. To expect Argentina or Indonesia or China or Ukraine to swallow such changes in a far shorter time is probably asking too much. No wonder we hear the creakings and crashings of the structures of the post-1945 world order all around us. But in the Middle East, the difficulties present not just another case of traditional societies having to come to terms with the forces of modernization. The unvarnished truth is that the tensions there are of a different order of magnitude. The region stands over a vast, sprawling area where a badly damaged, though powerful and religiously driven order is locked in confrontation with global trends more penetrating and unsettling than could ever have been imagined when Muslim self-confidence was at its peak some centuries ago, end quote. There is a lot to unpack here. First of all, assuming and claiming that the United States has a political democracy is the stretchiest of all stretches. And to say that we have a cultural pluralism while multiple states with English-only laws are refusing to teach public school classes in foreign or Native American languages is suspect as well. Now, laissez-faire economics, you got me on that one. We sure do have that. Except, of course, when the government bails out banks and airlines and telecommunications companies and developers and weapons manufacturers. And Anyway, the point of the article is to prime so-called liberal or ostensibly progressive readers of the New York Times to accept that the U.S. must bring civilization to the barbarous Middle East. To speak of another culture with such patronizing dismissal, such chauvinistic condescension, is to other them in ways that are useful to imperial interests. As Edward Said, he of the Bernard Lewis dunking, puts it in the introduction to the 2005 edition of his seminal work Orientalism, quote, There is, after all, a profound difference between the will to understand for purposes of coexistence and humanistic enlargement of horizons and the will to dominate 
for purposes of control and external dominion, end quote. This article, and others like it, further only the latter, the will to dominate. Speaking of others like it, in March of 2022, The Atlantic, one of the most insidiously conservative publications to ever infiltrate liberal discourse, published a piece titled, The Ukraine Crisis Briefly Put America's Culture War in Perspective. The conceit of the article is that Russia's intervention in Ukraine was more real than the culture war that people in the U.S. only pay attention to because they're, quote, bored or jaded, and thus because it meant something. It gave all those bored and jaded people a cause to come together over. Not only is this an obscene dismissal of real activists' efforts to bring attention to their life-or-death struggles in the U.S., struggles, I'll remind you all, also affect all of us as well, but it also reads exactly like the kind of jingoistic America is united against the terrorists media furor that liberals these days correctly ridicule the Bush era for. Further, when the article finally gets around to mentioning specifically what sorts of things were Googled less than the Ukraine story, it only talks about anti-vax people and anti-Biden American patriots with American patriots in scare quotes. The article presupposes that the stuff U.S. internet users were Googling and tweeting about in Ukraine was good and heroic, and it never interrogates why the intervention happened in the first place. NATO is never mentioned once, of course, and there are only a few throwaway references to the fact that the U.S. creates its own propaganda, too. Ukrainian President Zelensky is a hero, and everyone gets to see him be a hero, no questions asked. And if you do ask questions, well, your time would be better spent going back to your anti-science Fox News echo chamber, you nutty culture war conspiracy theorist. Thus, the weaponization is complete. We came together once, and those who fail to continue to tow the U.S. imperial line are distracted, or bored, or jaded, and subliminally lumped in with weirdo Republicans. What I'm trying to say is a lot of weirdos sitting around. In this way, people can support the war machine and still feel morally superior. Speaking of war machines, Herr Kleiser boasts to Jan about how the invasion was always intended to be bloodless, that the infiltration was to be so complete and totalizing that the entire population of Earth would be either unable or unwilling to stop it. Jan doesn't exactly believe his apparent respect for human life and calls him out on the whole, you know, Nazi thing. Kleiser writes off the hatred of Jews that resulted in the Holocaust as the Nazis' little eccentricities and says that it was forgivable. Jan then asks why they continue to use German names. Kleiser tells her that Chitauri don't have identities when they're in their extra-dimensional states, so using the German names and taking the forms of the German officers makes it easier to operate in our three-dimensional space. So, Mark Miller really had a bad guy who acts as some sort of identityless gestalt, can operate at any plane of existence apparently, and moves in multiple dimensions above or below our own at will. 
and he dressed them up as the most played-out bad guys in history without even updating their uniforms. Now don't get me wrong, whenever we have Nazis in a story, they should be the bad guys. But this just feels so limited and uninteresting. Instead of a splash page of Kleiser's consciousness coming unstuck in time as he communicates with his superiors, vibrating on a higher frequency or whatever, we get a two-page helicopter ride that takes a wrinkly old shithead to some ratty swastika flags. It's boring. This is a superhero comic for God's sake, not a period drama. Miller does add a little spice to it when he has Kleiser explain that the Chitauri have to eat whoever they're going to become. Kleiser then looks meaningfully at Jan and asks her to guess who he's planning to become next. And that's pretty good. It adds some higher stakes to the situation, although not immediately. It's right after this that something starts happening above Phoenix. Gigantic, triangular ships begin appearing in the sky all at once. Clearly, someone's plan has changed. Kleiser, having escorted Jan conveniently to the communications room at the Arizona base, pushes his comms officer out of the way to get a better read on whatever the hell is happening. We get another page and a half of people in and around the city reacting to the arrival of all of these ships. A commercial airliner is forced out of the sky. A massive shadow covers the city, that sort of thing. Then, we turn to a two-page spread of the immensity of the fleet, hundreds of ships all across the sky. What sticks out immediately is that most of the ships have somehow sustained pretty terrible damage. Great chunks of hull are missing from many of them. We can only assume it's recent enough for the Chitauri not to have begun repairs. Cut back to the facility on the ground, and Kleiser is speaking to the fleet. Again, it could have been a spread with, like, psychedelic time flowers or dimension rivers coming out of Kleiser's eyes as his consciousness transcends our limited perception of reality to intertwine with and be temporarily subsumed by the Chitauri Overmind or whatever. But no, it's just a column of green light with a hard-to-see bug person in it. The hard-to-see bug person explains to Kleiser that the fleet has been defeated in battle somewhere else and is retreating. The plan for Earth must be abandoned, and the whole place has got to go. Leaving that scene for a moment, retreated to a brief montage, if you will, of various news broadcasts reacting to all the big-ass alien ships. The question gets asked twice, why isn't anyone doing anything about this? Of course, in the comic, they're referring to the military, but it sort of mirrors a question that gets asked a lot today. Why isn't anyone doing anything? Well, we are. Or at least by God we're trying. Every day, more people are talking about this, and more importantly, people are getting involved. But there are still only so many of us here in the United States. Revolutionary organizations work so hard all the time to make your life better. It might not always be readily apparent, but it's true. There is, of course, a difference between talking and doing, and the doing is the hardest part. Much of that comes from the deliberate destruction of left-wing movements and the propaganda against any sort of activity that we've talked about already. It's time to get over that. There's one last aspect of the whole culture war, deliberate destruction of left-wing movements thing that I think is going to be pretty difficult 
for a lot of people to hear, and I want to be extremely careful when I talk about it. So much of what we're propagandized against, truly, more than anything else, is the success of socialist countries. And that's what many of the groups and people destroyed by projects like COINTELPRO were emulating and educating the masses on. It's fine to criticize the United States in polite company now, but to acknowledge the accomplishments of governments that directly oppose U.S. capitalist imperialist interests is a bridge too far. If you tell someone that China is leading the world in environmental restoration and renewable energy production, you're most often met with something like, but they don't have freedom, or they're authoritarian. If you mention that Cuba's main export is doctors, or that they have a lung cancer vaccine and a treatment for diabetes, the typical response is, uh, but Castro was a bad guy. Despite whatever you may hear regarding so-called human rights abuses or, quote, regressive social or cultural phenomena in other countries, you have to understand two things. The first is that those claims are almost entirely fabricated or are at the very least wildly exaggerated. You hear these distortions of reality from a media that is complicit with a government that would rather you did not know about the successes of those other countries or would at least like you to dismiss the successes you do hear about because of some nebulously detailed horror stories that are supposedly happening. For every claimed human rights abuse in any other country that you'll read about in corporate media, the United States is responsible for far worse. China has three times the population of the U.S., but only a fifth of the incarceration rate. Who's freer? China's socialist poverty eradication policies are responsible for pulling 85 million people out of poverty in the last two decades. If that's not what a government is for then I don't know what is. In Cuba, there are no homeless people because everyone has a home. In the United States, there are more empty apartments than there are homeless people, but we can't just give them away because that would eat into the billionaire developer's profits. In Cuba, everyone can read. Literacy is falling in the United States. Fewer people die in natural disasters in Cuba because the Cuban government is set up to actually respond to the needs of its people. Private security and data collection firms don't swoop in after hurricanes and profit off the suffering of millions. There's a reason that folks in the U.S. are fed this atrocity propaganda, as it's called. People are generally good. It's good when you have a negative reaction to hearing about these kinds of crimes. That's part of being a good person. We don't like it when others suffer. When we're exposed to injustice, we want it shut down. But this means that the best aspects of our humanity, our compassion and our desire for justice and progress are being conceptually used against us by our capitalist government that is the real perpetrator of abuse. With critical thinking and due diligence, we can break through this cynical ploy. But it's an uphill battle, believe me, I understand. There's a lot to unlearn. But when you finally do make it to the other side, you can start to do the meaningful work of actually serving the greater good. 
The second thing to understand and remember is that even if every bad thing you've heard about any official U.S. enemy were true, the United States and its allies still have no right to intervene in the name of progress or human rights. We are not the world's police. This is made true on a less conceptual, more realistic level by the fact that every single time the U.S. has interfered in world affairs since World War II, the U.S. has very deliberately made things worse for the people they were claiming to save. It happened in Southeast Asia. It happened in most of South America. It happened in the Middle East, and it's happening in Ukraine today. The most difficult thing to do in one's journey leftward is to accept that maybe other countries get a lot of things right and that we can learn from and avoid whatever mistakes they did make. Again, it's perfectly fine now and almost expected for someone to denounce capitalism and even the U.S. Everyone is feeling the pressure, the pinch, the abject horror. And there are more voices out there naming capitalism as the cause than ever before. People really do feel strongly that homelessness is unacceptable, that workers deserve to own the things they produce, that there should not be only 2,000 people who control 99% of the world's resources, including leaf blowers. These are good people, and there are more and more of them every day. The last hurdle, though, is to find real solutions and act upon them. These solutions exist, of course, and they're being acted upon today by governments around the world. They were also being acted upon by the groups inside the U.S. that COINTELPRO was specifically targeting. These groups had explicitly internationalist platforms, and that's something the U.S. government simply can't allow. So we have left-wing movements stymied at two different points in the process. If a movement gets too far along, starts becoming too successful, its goals are demonized, its allies are ostracized, and its leaders are killed by agencies of the United States government. More widespread, though, is the effort to prevent us from even getting to that point. Through confounding political punditry and a complicit media that promulgates the messages, we're set at each other's throats over stupid bullshit that shouldn't even be an issue. We're not even allowed to get to the point where they might want to kill us. Speaking of getting killed, I guess, the Wasp is screaming at Herr Kleiser that he can't just stand by and let a whole world get destroyed. He blithely corrects her that, in fact, they're going to destroy the whole solar system. He compares the Earth to a cancer that only surgery can remove. He then laments that he won't get the chance to experiment with the female form. And that just feels a little too close to, yet again, the trope of trans people always, always, always being psychopathic killers. That probably didn't even cross Miller's mind. But then again, maybe that's exactly the problem. Anyway, the comms officer hails Kleiser again to alert him of some sort of unexpected anomaly in, where else? Micronesia. He then asks if Iron Man's armor has force field capabilities, and suddenly a huge bolt of lightning cuts through the now darkened, crowded sky. It hits the base and forks directly into dozens of Chitauri posing as US soldiers, killing them instantly, I can only assume. With a numb expression on his face, 
Kleiser wryly congratulates Janet. I guess because she somehow contacted the Ultimates and told them where they were? Even though she couldn't have. She's been naked and stuck in a jar since they left the Triskelion. How did she know where to tell the Ultimates to go? I'm sure if I asked him, Mark Miller could easily justify their appearance by saying that Iron Man had some sort of sensors in his armor or something, but it's still a weird line and it doesn't seem to fit. Kleiser drops the glass tube holding Janet, and we see him dashing away as it shatters on the ground. Why would he not just keep her in his pocket? Also, if the glass smashed that easily, don't you think it would break if she just grew to regular human size? It might hurt like hell, but it's just glass. At the bottom of the page is an admittedly cool sort of stylized panorama of the silhouettes of the Ultimates as they flash onto the scene. Then we turn the page and see yet another two-page spread. This time, it's the Ultimates and Nick Fury standing heroically amidst the fleet of invading warships, and it's dumb and I hate it. Captain America directs Iron Man and Thor to lead the charge. As the battle gets going in earnest, Captain America is radioing to every military unit available. He's commanding them to ignore whatever orders they've recently been given and to get to this battle as soon as possible. On the last page, we see the living, breathing apotheosis of American exceptionalism propaganda climbing into a fighter jet, looking us, the audience, right in the eye and proclaiming, your country needs you. And let me tell you, boy does it ever. Greetings once again, faithful listeners out there in Listenerland. We hope you've been chumming it up with comrades, friends, and family. It's important to remain joyous and hopeful in the struggle. And what better way to do that than by welcoming new arrivals? We'd like to thank new patrons, Jeff S., Mr. Pig from the Intervention Podcast, and my man, Joey Steele. You'll all be given the requisite documentation, a tour of the town starting at the Parenti statue in the park, and an ice cream cone in the flavor of your choosing. And, of course, a massive revolutionary appreciation goes out to Destroyer of Empire-level supporter, David Barajas. As well as the bonus episodes, and their names read at the end of each episode, Destroyer of Empire-level supporters get a coveted seat on the council, giving them power to submit and vote on issues to be covered for full-length bonus episodes. If you, dear listeners, would like to support the show and the struggle, you can sign up for our Patreon as well at patreon.com slash collectiveactioncomics. Any of the four tiers will get your name on the radio. You can email the show at collectiveactioncomics at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at collectiveactioncomics or on Twitter at CAComicsPod. That's comics with an X. And as always, tune in next time for the next thrilling installment of Collective, Collective Action, Action Comics! Comics.